0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast, and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Let's go back to Pedro's report. A section of that report aims to debunk an article from July 14, 2008 that called into question your relationship with your friend and fellow referee, Scott Foster. Are you familiar with that section?
1: Not really, no. Go ahead.
0: In that section of the Pedowitz Report, it traces a series of phone calls that you made with Scott Foster. Foster said most of these calls were to kill time. Is that accurate?
1: It is. I mean, it was a situation where, you know, when you're in a hotel room and you have nothing to do, you're bored. We'd call each other a couple times a day, and when we are sitting around, we'd call each other just to see what was going on.
0: So, Scott, for the games that he was refing, were you asking specific questions about the games? Did he have any biases towards players that you were trying to extract during those conversations and understand to better
1: th- There were times when we would talk about, you know, different situations with different players, and if I felt that it was going to affect the game that night in some way, I would tell, you know, Tommy or Jack about the games.
0: Different situations with different players. That clip is from episode four of Whistleblower. I like countless other basketball fans have longed to understand the relationship between Tim Donahy and Scott Foster. I have my suspicions, but there's never been a smoking gun. Nothing that proves conclusively that Foster was or wasn't involved. Welcome back to our second bonus episode, brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. I'm your host, Tim Livingston. This is Whistleblower.
2: doing like that, you know, alerting. So, number- so
0: well, I got a quick question for Tommy. Did Donahue become aware that too much money was moving in these games? Did Jimmy, did you ever alert him? Because this work. goes back to Scott Foster, right? Where he was trying to throw off Vegas with right. Scott's games?
2: Yeah, he didn't know. He was winning in the high 70s, right. 77.7, which is pretty
0: fucking damn good.
3: If pretty to answer good.
0: your question. Sorry. But that includes Foster's games, the 70s, 77, right? Yeah. Yes. I'm sitting across from Batista and Tommy at our Airbnb's dining room table. It's taken me almost a decade to get Batista. And while he doesn't trust me enough to tell me everything, he is now willing to openly discuss the relationship between referees Tim Donahue and Scott Foster. Before we get into our conversation, let's revisit what we know about the Donaghy-Foster relationship. First, the phone calls. Donaghy and Foster exchanged 134 phone calls over a five-and-a-half-month span at the height of the scheme. A vast majority of the calls came in the hours before or after games that Donaghy or Foster refereed. Second, in the countless interviews that he's done over the years, Donahue has repeatedly told the story that he used, quote, inside information to make winning picks on NBA games. Donahue's inside information was really just his understanding of referee bias. He knew when a referee disliked a certain player, coach, or owner, and would use that information when betting on games that were not his own. When it came to Foster, Donahue claims that he would assess, quote, different situations with different players, and would bet on the games with Tommy or Jack after gleaning information from Foster. If you don't recall from season one, Delco insurance salesman Jack Kincannon was another one of Donahue's betting partners. Lastly, Donahue was giving Batista Foster's games to quote, throw off Vegas. He wanted Foster's games to create wild line movement. Foster's games for Donahue were a means to throw the NBA and regulators off of his scent.
3: He knew that it it would raise a flag eventually, but at that time, he didn't know because he intentionally told me, I'm giving Baba Scott Foster's games because I want Foster's games to move like mine are. So when they get on the list to see all the games that moved, it's not just Dunnagee's, it's Dunnagee's and Foster's. And that's when I went to you, and after he lost five of Foster's games, I, and I said, he's got another Foster game. He goes, back at this Foster game. And, and, now, and now the people I'm
2: working with, they don't, want they don't want them. They were mad. They're furious. As now crazy. they're fucking mad because... And then we're watching we're watching a game that Scott's calling it.
3: And,
0: and so is, Scott, okay, here's now the, that we're taping, we've we discussed this yesterday at lunch. Right. Foster went one and six. Foster's games that Don yes, gave you went one and six.
2: Listen, I looked at the game, I watched every game,
0: you know, like you that. watched all the foster games. I
2: watched every game that we bet. I had to because I want this I was more concerned about the calls. That, Timmy made some calls that were just unbelievable.
0: I'm trying to get Batista to ask himself, when looking back, would it make sense if Foster was refing against the pick that Donahue gave him? Remember what Tommy said in the first bonus episode when I asked him about the results of Foster's games. You remember they all lost? All lost. Did they lose badly? The
4: spreads and stuff? Yeah, yeah, they, weren't, yeah they weren't close. You know what I mean, Tim? In my eyes, what's there? Nothing to do with it
0: the games weren't close. These weren't games where a four-point favorite, only won by three. When Donahue placed a bet with other partners, i.e. Jack and Cannon, he was just like any other better. If he won, he won. If he lost, he lost. But you might remember that that wasn't the case with Batista. What made the Batista deal unique is that Batista allowed Donahue to bet risk-free. With Batista, Donaghy didn't have to pay a dime if his pick turned out to be a loser. Because of this arrangement, I've wondered if there could have been intentionality from Donaghy in giving Batista the losing side of Foster's games. He could accomplish his goal of throwing off Vegas and then give the winning side of Foster's games to Jack and Cannon and his other betting partners to still make money off of those games. But Batista told me in a separate phone call that he was in close touch with Kincaidon's bookie during this time, Pete Rhino Ruggieri. And that Rhino said that Kincaidon and Donaghy were betting the wrong side of Foster's games with him as well. He couldn't it? do it anywhere close to Timmy was. So he couldn't do it, right? He, he so couldn't, the calls, he was— for, I so if he's, he, But if he's losing, was he making calls that favored the other team? Do you remember that? Did you have a gut feeling?
2: Did I ever pay Scott Falster? No. Do I think that Timmy made a deal with him? And if he wants to go with, run with it now that he was, you know, just doing it through all— No fucking way, because he was too much of a greedy fuck. If he wasn't a greedy fuck, then I would say yes. But he was a greedy fuck and it was all about money. So if he threw away uh you know close to thirty thousand on getting paid out, no fucking way in the world. He that he was doing because he's was always concerned about making more money. And it was Tommy it was only Timmy concerned about making money. So there's no fucking so he's throwing away thirty thousand, no fucking. Then way. why is he trying to throw up Vegas? I, I well,
0: had, you knew these were Scott Foster's games at the time. He yes, told you yes. he was he was open with you and you He was were open to Tommy and he told me who these games were. You're 100% sure that he told you he was trying to throw off Vegas? Of course. At the time.
4: 100%.
0: Yeah. Sure, he told me that. That that was his rationale. That was his rationale. Trying to throw off Vegas. Yeah. Trying to throw off Vegas. And he
3: laughed. We laughed about it.
2: But he also laughed about me sending the Gambinos to go down to whack Kim and his kids. So, one lie doesn't answer for another lie, because he was bullshitting about that to cover his fucking ass. So he's going to cover his fucking ass for that, t- that he was w- really working with Scott. So okay, these what's These are apples the and oranges, you know? Uh, ain't no fucking apples and oranges. We're talking about a lot of fucking money here, and, what he, and he pissed off a lot of people. He was getting fucking paid no matter what. So if he didn't fucking, if the phone records won't fucking lie. When I saw the phone records, like, what the fuck? So he's picking f- 54 games and he talks to Scott pre and after. First fucking call. Why didn't, why weren't there any calls and three games at halftime? That's to me is I was there. You, you
0: know Tim better than anybody. Right. Why is he calling Scott right after the game before he calls you?
3: I was with him. Before,
0: before. You weren't with him.
3: He's on the road. Yeah. I was
0: with him a lot of the time. No, the phone, but the phone records, the, there's sequences, right? Where mm-hmm. he calls Scott before he calls... and then he calls would call
3: him. me after the game and say, good boy
0: but he's calling Scott first.
3: Well, he, he was in bed, so like he would call me when he was in bed and say, good boy, good boy. It was like, good night, but good boy. Good, and I would say, good boy. And we'd hang the phone up, because he won. So was, he, was the phone call to Scott Foster before me? If it was, I don't know, I'm not a mind reader, but I was there several times in the room with him in Arizona and Toronto where I would see him on the phone with Scott Foster. Did he walk into the other room? He started the conversation in front of me and walked into the other room. I don't remember if he walked into the other room so I wouldn't hear Tim. You
0: know? He did. I mean, that's why okay. you walk into what? the other room and you're on the phone. No, but I mean, yeah, so did you... The the conversations that you heard with Donahue and Foster started off very casual. And then at some point, he walks into the other room and you don't hear the rest of the call, correct? Correct. Okay. okay, so that... And again, that doesn't... Uh-oh. Mean that you have any additional information? That just—it's suspicious.
3: Yeah. The mm-hmm. phone
0: records are suspicious, and that detail from whistleblower from season one—that was, again, this is all behavioral. It's that right. is incredibly suspicious. What is he talking about with his other best friend that he doesn't want his best best yeah, friend? If you're his best friend, the game. The so NBA he's talking. So, he, right. so exactly, so exactly, they're talking about the game. the game. When Martino wasn't with Donahue in person, Foster and Donahue would talk about the game, and then Donahue would call Martino seconds after to provide Tommy with Foster's pick. It sure would be interesting to hear Foster's side of these calls, right? To understand from his lips why this is all just one big misunderstanding. But Foster has never had to speak publicly about his relationship with Tim Donahue, he's never had to defend himself. Instead, his defense came from his employer. The Pettowitz Report, the report commissioned by the NBA in the aftermath of the scandal, devotes six pages to the Foster-Donahy relationship. In the end, Pettowitz concludes that the relationship was innocent in nature. Pedowitz's writing is intentionally dull. The NBA didn't want anyone to read this report, and you're about to understand why. Because Pedowitz's defense of Scott Foster isn't much of a defense at all. What you're about to hear is a word-for-word reading of the report starting on the middle of page 29, part four, section A2, title, Scott Foster.
1: Several factors lead us to conclude that Foster was not involved in Donaghy's misconduct. And that there are innocent explanations for the calls reflected in the phone records. First, no information suggests that the government has ever believed that Foster engaged in any improper conduct with Donahue. The government at no time has indicated through questions to the NBA or requests for documents that Foster has been under any suspicion whatsoever the government contacted Foster only once during its investigation, when the FBI interviewed him in August 2007. During this interview, which the FBI conducted by phone rather than in person, the FBI asked Foster about his relationship with Donahue. Foster explained his long-term friendship with Donahue and told the FBI that they spoke almost every day during the season. It appears that the purpose of this interview was simply to confirm that Donahue had accurately described his relationship with his friend Foster. Second, although Donahue's attorneys submitted letters to the court in June 2008, alleging misconduct by referees, those submissions contained no suggestion that Foster was involved in any improper conduct or that any referee other than Donahue was involved in betting on NBA games. This point, is worth emphasizing.
0: Pedowitz offered eight factors in total that led him and his team to conclude that the relationship between Tim Donahue and Scott Foster was innocuous. The first two that you just heard seem to be the reasons Pedowitz found most convincing. So let's break them down. First, he says that the government never believed Foster engaged in any improper conduct. This is where you have to tip your cap to Pedowitz and David Stern. We introduced evidence in season one that the NBA might have leaked the Donahue story to the New York Post and thwarted the government's investigation in the process. Whether or not that occurred, it sure feels audacious for Pedowitz to put the responsibility of investigating Foster on the government. Isn't this Pedowitz's report? Aren't we reading this to understand his findings? What does the government have to do with anything? Next, Pedowitz says Foster can't be involved because Tim Donaghy says Foster isn't involved. The NBA and Pedowitz tell us repeatedly that Donaghy cannot be trusted, that he'll say anything to deflect blame. Tim Donahy is lying. They tell us this over and over and over again, except when it comes to Scott Foster. When it comes to Foster, Pedowitz tells us that Tim Donahy is telling the truth. He emphasizes the point. And now that you're starting to understand what was at stake for Donahy, if word got out that he was betting with Foster, more restitution, more jail time, an open invitation for the government to actually dive into his phone and financial records. You understand why Donaghy wants the relationship he fostered with Scott to remain under wraps. Pedowitz ends the Foster section with this paragraph.
1: Foster requested that we ask the NBA if he could be allowed to meet with the media to explain that he has done nothing wrong. He also offered to have a reporter follow him for a week during the next season so that the reporter could understand the life he leads as an NBA referee and why and when he's on the phone with fellow NBA referees. We have asked the commissioner to allow Foster to respond to future media inquiries.
0: 15 years ago, the Pedowitz Report asked the commissioner to allow Foster to respond to media inquiries. 15 years later, and the media is still getting turned down. And Foster has never had to answer pointed questions about his relationship with Donahue, or more recently, his bizarre feuds with NBA stars Chris Paul and James Harden. Why does the NBA shield its refs from the media? What would the harm be in letting them talk? What are they hiding? Many he's of talking about the, the game, the, but if, if the, it's innocuous talk, right? If it's Tim's then you, Tim's you claim. Then
2: let's go about back balls. to Tim's
0: let's go back to the behavior in Tim's claims. They had the most insane rationale for why they wanted to referee games a certain way, in a way that affected the outcome, in a way that fucked one team over, right? So they had vendettas and those vendettas were acted out over the course of forty-eight minutes and they affected the outcome of the game, right? So according to Tim, those calls with Scott, he was just trying to figure out hey Scott like you you don't, don't like, him jump off the bridge which by the way like Tim already knew that information now that I'm saying this out loud right so Tim knew if Scott Foster didn't like this player on the Nuggets or didn't like Vlade Divac or didn't like Shaq or didn't know so Tim already knew that actually right so Tim's claims now that we're now that I'm talking through this and theorizing that's kind of even more unbelievable
3: or it's innocuous
0: like you said but if it's innocuous why isn't he having the phone why isn't that phone call taking place in the same room as his other best friends i don't think he i don't think scott Forster was his best friend he claims he claim they came to the nba together and tim claims they were best friends this is, I'm, I'm using tim tim claims <coughs> okay. they were best friends okay cool tommy i love you and if yeah. Donna, he's listening to this Donna, he better know that Tommy is attempting to protect
3: you. Well, I, I don't. I don't think Timmy cares either way. Honestly, I don't. Right? I mean, or he would have said what I'm saying. Well, he, I'm, this is just my opinion on.
0: Nobody's that. given the. The key is that nobody has given me or anybody a good explanation. And there's two people that can they can provide an explanation: Scott Foster and Tim Donaghy. Nobody's given a. Solid explanation for why these guys were talking the course of five and a half months in a a very suspicious pattern Why when he called Scott the cat the conversation started off casual and then he had to leave the room When he is with you the person he feels most comfortable with, the person with that you've had sex together on the same bed, correct? Not me, him, and I. No. <laughs> no, or, was, no. You guys, you guys have hooked up with girls in the same room. Yeah. So you guys have been oh. naked and had sexual intercourse with Is two it? consenting females in the same room. Yeah. You, he feels comfortable enough to do that. He doesn't feel comfortable enough to have a, a conversation with Scott Foster, and you don't find that suspicious at all? Yeah, maybe.
3: I got to ask you a question. Go ahead. Why would Timmy protect Foster? Somebody give me that answer
2: now. Because he already made a deal with the NBA
0: and the FBI. We've talked about the NBA's PR mastery in this story, but don't forget how cleverly Donahue played the system. Donahue went to the FBI early and directed Phil Scala's eyes to the broader conspiracy. Scala wasn't focused on Donahue's web, he was focused on the NBA's. The FBI never seriously looked into Foster or any of the other suspicious numbers that popped up over and over again in Donahue's phone records. All of those people escaped from this mess scot-free.
2: We called with Tommy's lawyer, Vicki Harr, and we had another, I had another person call to find out who they were. One was when I found out with Scott Foster, ooh, this is convenient. You know And you saw that
0: number over and over and over, over and again.
2: over again.
0: But you yeah. made all these calls and yes. deduced that seven or eight other people Yes, we're, okay. they did. So the call. seven or eight other people Tim's betting with. If one of those Or people, transmitting
2: information. Let's you know, I can again you know, that's but, in my And mind.
0: that's not public. According to Tim Donahue, Batista pressured him to bet. He was he was no, trying I, no, to no,
2: according to Timmy, I I forced him to bet. Because according to Timmy, and he said on 60 Minutes, never was, I forced him to bet, or I was gonna send the Gambinos down to fucking whack his wife and his kids. That's what Timmy said. I was forced. I had no other choice to do.
0: And you contend that's not true? I
2: don't know, Tim, Tommy, you answer that question. Did I ever Did I ever threaten him? I never saw
0: you threaten him. <laughs> Donahue claims that Batista threatened him at the Marriott meeting, where they solidified their pact, but Tommy in season one told us that Batista never threatened Donaghy. Here's what Tommy told me at the end of episode three. The,
3: the big lying point was that Donaghy was threatened by Batista. The fact of the matter is, he wasn't. But Tim asked me to back him up, you know, on that. So I always have to say, I never threatened him, but I don't know what happened with with Timmy and Batista when I wasn't around, but I I was never not around. Yeah, Tim would be pissed if he heard that. All
0: right, so going back, going back. So if Foster, going back to Tommy's question, because it's an important question, what is Tim's prerogative in potentially protecting Foster? He can't let anybody know that he was betting with seven other guys. That's more money that's coming into his pocket that he has to account for. That, if Foster was involved, and Foster was, if there's any sort of monetary relationship between the two, that not only makes Tim look way worse it's more money has to account yes, for it's, it makes it
2: says holy shit this is besides m- m- me running my operation tim he's got his own private little company he's like well i'm getting a few thousand from bad on the fucking games they're me and if i if they don't win i'm getting paid no matter what but i know my games are good
0: and i'm betting somewhere else too think about what batista is saying think about tim donahy running his own little company Think about how easy the money was for Donahue before Batista's mistakes, not Donahue's. brought the whole thing down. Batista said 25 to 30 refs across major sports dabbled in game fixing during his years in the underground betting world. Again, the hard part, in my opinion, isn't fixing a game. The hard part is getting caught.
2: He is a greedy motherfucker. He only cared about money. If he didn't care about money, and like he did, then I would say, all right, you know what? Maybe it doesn't make, but he's a greediest motherfucker. I've met my life. He only cared about money. Tom, <laughs>
3: you want to answer that or, but you know. Well, he'll tell you he is,
2: yeah. No, I didn't say what he said he is. I'm asking your personal assessment. Like you can say, can someone say to you, do you think Baba had a drug problem? Yes, he did. Do you think Timmy is a greedy motherfucker?
3: Can you reword that?
0: <laughs> Which word, greedy or motherfucker? Don't make Tommy answer that, Jimmy. Why? Don't make Tommy he, we're that. Not, Listen, we're all greedy,
2: Jim. We were all greedy. No, I didn't yeah. ask the question Was Tommy, is Timmy Dunaghy a greedy motherfucker?
3: Yes or no? I don't like those curse words, Jim. Um, You're uh, what? Tomorrow's Sunday. No, today, tomorrow's Wednesday. I disagree. Believe that.
0: Put this on the record, and this will be in the podcast. That Tommy still believes, and Tommy was the one who's with Tim, and is the only one that heard Tim Donahue talk to Scott Foster on the phone during this time. Knows Tim Donahue better than anybody, and Tommy thinks that their he relationship was innocuous, and thinks thinks that he would have told you. Yeah. That's, I, that's fair. I mean that's yeah, that's why this is so interesting because you might be right. Yeah. I'm not I'm not this is the same thing as an NBA foul is if we watched a game with Tim Donahue right now, one of the games he refed, and I said, Tim, that's clearly a fucking block." And he said, nope, it's a charge. Who's right? That's the gray area that he thrives within and that he when it comes to what he's going to hear when we're talking on this thing. And Tim Donahue is absolutely infuriated that the three of us are sitting at a table right now in Delaware County having this conversation without him being able to defend himself and tell the story that he's told over and over again. Like, well, Tim's, Tim's well, going to be really mad. but He's he- going
2: to be no matter what because his story is the same from the day one. And the only thing I was going to say is people forget, once you make a deal with the government, okay, you got to stick to it.
3: Because they'll call you a liar if you change it, right? And exactly. he won't believe the damn words you say, exactly. And that happened to Timmy. And you know, That's why did he didn't get the deal. He went to jail. I know he could have done a shit more times. Well, that's apparently. a great cover up for him
2: because when the focus of the attention's on you for doing something wrong, what do you do? You attack your employer. You go after them. You go after them, and you know. And then he looks at everyone that he hates in the company that gave him a hard time for the way he was. So that's. That's natural. So to me, in that, he's attacking David Stern, he's attacking these fellow referees, he's attacking all the wrong he did to cover up for what we did. And that makes a lot more sense to me.
0: I wanted closure when it came to Scott Foster, and I still don't have it. But Batista telling me that Donahue was losing money on Foster's games with Ruggieri, to me, if true, says that Foster was either the worst referee game fixer in the history of sports, or genuinely had no idea that he was a pawn in Donahue's scheme. The phone records are suspicious. The behavior is suspicious. Hedowitz's language is suspicious. Suspicious doesn't mean guilty. Putting Foster aside, let's focus on Batista's claim that he worked with 25 to 30 refs over the course of his betting career. And combined that with former Colombo capo, Michael Franzese, who claimed in season one that referees were a regular part of his game fixing operation. Donahue got caught because the scheme got too big. But what about the other referees who kept things contained? How many of them are still out there? How many games today are being fixed. Part of me feels ready to put the story to bed. It's eaten up so much of and, my life uh, already. There was another 10 years. from uh, O'Hara, Eddie Malloy, How, am How am I supposed to unravel the schemes of 25 to 30 refs? How am I supposed to get Seriously? bookmakers and mobsters and just beginning this, but, um, to tell me their stories? Few people, they and, have uh, every incentive I got not to. That's where I was emotionally after Delco. Then, I get a phone call from Jimmy Batista.
4: Jimmy, I I just talked to again, and he's off his restrictions this July, so he feels he'd be free to talk to us. I texted you the Arkin report, the financials, and it shows a lot of things. Other NBA referees that could have been possibly been sideways, and I texted them two names. I don't want to say them yet until he said but look into them, at certain issues, and then he started rambling about all these other names. I said, hold on. I said, stop. I said, come July 1st, you're free. Then uh, we can sit down and go over everything. He agreed. He, he was really good, but he says look into them things right now, and I sent you the two names that uh, might throw some red flags also. you talking about? Yes, I did. And what did he say there? He just laughed again. I said, can you get me the report? He has a shitload of information. I think we're fishing in the right pond now.
0: And that's all I can say. Thank you to our sponsor, Underdog Fantasy. If you want to make the NBA season infinitely more enjoyable, download the Underdog Fantasy app and make a deposit using the code WHISTLE. Follow me on Twitter. My handle's at Sports. I'll be posting my Underdog Pick'em slips throughout the NBA season. Pick'em is the easiest fantasy game to play and the most fun. That's Underdog Fantasy code WHISTLE. Win up to 20 times your money on a single game. Thanks for listening. Whistleblower is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Whistleblower Media, in association with Cadence 13. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV. Myself and Doug Matica are creators and executive producers on behalf of Whistleblower Media. Our co-executive producer is Colo Ocasio. Our lead producer is Alex Vespasted. Co-producers are Mason Lindsey, Matt Keller, and Paul Kasheri. Bonus episodes produced by Patty Cotter. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Cooper Skinner. Additional mixing by Devin Johnson. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover design and illustration by Mr. Soul. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, Ryan Nord and the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella of Workhouse Media, Max Hacker and John Bogakis, the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Cadence 13, and to Michael Imperioli. Check out his new podcast, Talking Sopranos, wherever you get your podcasts.